My name is Beto, and hi. What's up? Hey. I'm part of our college ministry here, Awaken OSU, which a lot of you know that. You've heard me say that a million times before. But if you're new here, that's who I am, so welcome. And I am really, really excited about our topic for this evening, which is the Trinity. We're going to talk about the Trinity tonight, and this is a huge and dense topic. And for that reason, we're going to move through things really quickly tonight. So if you have questions after this, feel free to talk to me or one of the pastors here, Chris or Kimball, or I mean, just someone who goes here who you think is familiar with this information. And because of the nature of the topic, because it is so, it's such an important and large topic, it's a very dense topic, I still have questions about this as well. Um, but I am very thankful and I owe so much of what I do understand to excellent teachers like William Lane Craig, Greg Kokel, Eric Chabot. A lot of you know Eric. He's the leader of Ratio Christi. who's a student org at OSU. But I say this because what I'm going to be talking about tonight, these are not just like my own crazy ideas, but this is the Trinity is the teaching of the church for the last roughly 2,000 years. And these teachers that I mentioned in particular helped me grasp some of the more complex features of this topic. So, like I said, we have a lot to get into tonight, so I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into it. So, Father, I pray that you would bless this evening. Help me communicate uh, this topic clearly, Lord. It is so important. It is the nature of who you are. And I pray that we would understand and we would grow in knowledge of you. And as a result, we'd grow in intimacy with you as well. So Lord, I pray that we'd all have minds that are ready and willing to understand and that in our learning, we'd worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we're going to approach the topic of the Trinity in three different ways tonight. The first is our approach, just talking about how we should approach the subject. The second is explaining the Trinity. What does it mean for God to be in Trinity, a unity of three, tri-unity, and then how this information relates to us as Christians. So first off, talking about our approach, it's important to understand why this matters. Why does it matter understanding the Trinity? Well, first off, I think if we're only interested in the characteristics of God, which are important, but if we're only interested in the characteristics of, characteristics of God, our God starts to just look like everybody else's. I mean, if we say our God is holy, loving, kind, just, powerful, etc., these just aren't enough identifying features of who he is. We should also understand his nature because it's God's nature that largely sets him apart from other false concepts. Secondly, I think that understanding the Trinity helps us avoid some heretical or blasphemous ideas like modalism, Arianism, or ranking the levels of the Trinity. I'll define these words later, modalism and Arianism, but I think oftentimes what ranking the levels of the Trinity looks like is we recognize that God is Father. We get that. That's good. And then we kind of view Jesus as this lesser amateur God. He's like God Jr. And then we don't even know what to make of the Holy Spirit, so we kind of throw him in the backseat unless we need him to do something cool. And I think we want to avoid these um, ideas. And then finally, simply, 
we should want to know the God we love and worship more. So let's talk about some misconceptions to avoid too before we get into it. One misconception is that the Trinity is impossible to understand. And I just don't think this is true. I think that though God is unfathomable, God is not unreasonable. He's not arbitrary and random, but he is an intelligent, rational being. He gave us the same mind. We can understand him. We can understand what he does. Though a lot of things God does, and just kind of his nature, is clouded in a level of mystery, we can understand God. Another misconception to avoid is that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, so it's not a biblical idea. Well, I think that though the word Trinity itself is not found in the Bible, the concept is. And the word Trinity is how we describe God's nature that is revealed in the Bible. And lastly, a final misconception to avoid is that God was not in Trinity in the Old Testament. Well, though the Trinity was not revealed until really the time of Christ, the Old Testament does hint to God's plurality. And the Trinity is an elaboration of Jewish theology, not a rejection of it. And it's impossible, the statement is impossible to say God was not in Trinity in the Old Testament because if the Trinity is God's nature, and then he has always been this way. There's never a time when he was not this way. So with that said, let's take a look at the Trinity itself. Who is God? Let's look at his nature. The most basic truth about God is that there is only one God. This is what the Bible teaches, and we'll start by looking at the Old Testament. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This verse, Deuteronomy 6.4, is called the Shema, and it is the fundamental proclamation of Judaism. They were supposed to say it every day, pray it and recite it every day. It was like a creed. This is the most basic and important belief in Judaism, that there is one God. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Isaiah 45.5, the first part of verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And then verse 18 of Isaiah 45 says, For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens... He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. So these are just a handful of verses from the Old Testament that talk about how there is only one God. And this is what we can conclude as Christians. One, the Old Testament declares there's only one God. Two, we believe in the Old Testament as Christians. Therefore, three, we believe in the one God the Old Testament declares. But let's look at what the New Testament says about this topic. Mark 12, 28 through 30 says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So we see that the most important command 
for someone to follow and believe is the Shema. Jesus quotes it. Therefore, it is our most basic and important fundamental belief as well. Romans 3, 29 through 30 says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Finally, James 2.19 says, You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So, we see that across the board, Old Testament, New Testament, the entirety of the Bible teaches that there is only one God. So, how are we supposed to understand this idea then of the Trinity, that there is one God in three persons? I think that we can understand it like this. There is one God, and he has three distinct and fully aware and unique consciousnesses, three minds, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God. But this statement, those statements I just made, are predicates, not identity statements. These are statements of description. If they were identity statements, and then when we say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, we are saying they are each other. And that is not what we believe. Because the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So let me explain this a little further with a semantic illustration for all you language nerds out there. Take the statement, Oscar is a great cat. You'll see on the slide that there is a circle with a bunch of dots in it. Each dot represents, figuratively, every gray cat that exists. So when we say Oscar is a gray cat, are we saying that every single gray cat is Oscar? No. Which one are we talking about? Next slide shows which one we're talking about, the one with the circle of the arrow pointing to it. This is the specific one we're talking about when we say Oscar is a gray cat. He's not every gray cat because another one might have a different name, might be a different individual. So let's look at this illustration concerning the Trinity. You'll see a circle has a dot that represents every single God that exists. There's only one, because only one God exists. So when we say the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, what do we mean? Well, this next one shows what we do not mean. We do not mean that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each other. They are not each other. They are three distinct persons. And we definitely do not mean this next one that has three dots in it, because that's polytheism. We don't think that the Father, Son, and Spirit are different gods. Finally, this last one is what we do believe. There is one substance, one being who is God, and there are three distinct and individual minds, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God is a unity of three. We don't want to blend their identities, but we also don't believe there are three gods. So, a good question to ask ourselves is, how do we know that they're actually three distinct persons and what we read in the Bible is not just God acting in different ways? Because many people have argued that in the past. Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say. And while the Old Testament, again, does hint towards God's plurality, we're not going to look at the Old Testament tonight because, just for time's sake, but if you are interested 
in learning about what the Old Testament has to say about God and Trinity. And then there's an excellent teaching I can recommend to you after this by Eric Chabot. He really goes in depth about the relationship between the Trinity and the Old Testament. But we're going to look at the New Testament tonight. And let's start by looking at how the Father is a distinct individual. Matthew 11:27 says this, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus distinguishes the Father from himself by name and then by pronoun. And the pronoun is very, very important. Pronouns like I, you, him, her, these kind of words that we use to distinguish ourselves from other people and other people from each other. For example, when Kimball frequently tells me, you are better looking than me, what he is not saying is that he is better looking than himself. That statement doesn't make any sense. He says, uses the pronouns you and me to distinguish ourselves, that we are different people and I am the better looking one. That's how pronouns work. Let's look at Matthew 26, 39. It says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So we see the father is distinguished from the son as a different person, as a different individual. Jesus refers to him as you. He refers to himself as I. He is not speaking to himself, but another person. So let's look at how the son is distinct then. We kind of see that in looking at these verses about the father, but let's look at the son in a little more detail. Mark 1, 9 through 12 says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Again, we see more pronoun distinction here. The Father refers to Jesus as my son. He says about Jesus, he refers to him as you. There's a distinction here. The son is not the Father. Then we see the Spirit is the one who sent Jesus out into the wilderness. Jesus did not send himself out. The Father did not send Jesus out. But the Spirit is a distinct individual who sent Jesus out. We'll get into that a little bit more later. But let's look at John 17, 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the glory I had with you before the world began. So here we see a ton of pronoun distinction. Jesus is not talking to himself. The Father is you. Jesus refers to himself as I and me. They are clearly distinct individuals. But the question's worth asking, how is this possible? How is Jesus a distinct individual from the Father? How does this existence work? Well, let me explain this with a metaphor uh, using the Son. And the sun as in the star in the sky that heats our planet, not the sun as in Christ. Before I explain this metaphor, let me talk about where it came from. So during the first century, B.C. and A.D., there was a man named Philo of Alexandria. He lived from 25 B.C. to 50 A.D. 
and he coined this idea of the logos, a term that many of us have probably heard before because it's John really talks about the logos in his gospel. I'll get into that in a sec, but Philo coined this idea of the logos, and he described it as the logos is a perfect image of God and, as, and is described as his son. The logos is immaterial, governs the world, advocates on behalf of humanity, and submits to the Father's authority. And he uses a metaphor with the sun to describe the logos, saying, think of the sun and its rays. The rays are begotten from the sun, meaning they come from the sun and are the same substance. Now, don't think about the sun in our 21st century terms, because we know that the sun is a giant ball of exploding gas, and the rays of the sun are not that. Think about the sun in Philo's terms. The simple terms where you have light that gives off light. That's how he would have understood this. That's how he's using the metaphor. The sun's rays come from the sun and are of the same substance of the sun. You have light from light. And this is how he explains the logos. Same substance, sun, different entity, sun's rays, take on a different form. But they are all the sun. Now, when you think about this, like, this sounds like the Logos was created then because sun's rays start coming out of the sun at some point in time. But he says, now imagine this. Imagine if the sun was never created and it was, it, it was eternal. It always existed. And then when did the rays start proceeding from the sun? Never. They have always existed because the sun was never created. Now this is applied to the sun as in the deity, S-O-N. Jesus is of the same substance of the Father. He is divine. They are co-divine together. They are co-eternal because the Father was never created. So Jesus is God of God. In this way, he's a distinct individual while also being divine of the same one substance who is God. And this is exactly what the Apostle John uses in his gospel when he talks about the word, the word that was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God. This word for word is logos. John uses this philosophy, and he believes that Jesus is the logos. Unlike Philo of Alexandria, John does not believe that the logos stayed immaterial, but he writes in his gospel, then the word, the logos, became flesh, and this is Jesus Christ. There's a comment I really enjoy by John Piper in reference to this, where he says, He's a complete and living duplicate of the Father's perfections. This, of course, is a great mystery, how an idea or reflection or image of the Father can actually be a person in his own right. So there is mystery surrounding this at a level, but we see that Jesus is a distinct person from the Father, co-substantial, however, co-divine, co-eternal. Let's look at the distinction of the Spirit. Matthew 28, 19 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here, the Holy Spirit is distinguished by name, different than the Father and the Son. And then John 15, 26 says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The Spirit here is distinguished from the Father and the Son by the pronoun again, he. The Holy Spirit is a distinct individual. He is a he. 
So, I think that it's worth asking the same question we did about Jesus. How is this existence possible as a distinct individual? I think it's worth asking this about the Holy Spirit as well so that we understand. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis I really like from his book, Beyond Personality, The Christian Idea of God, where Lewis writes, you know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or trades union, people talk about the spirit of that family, club, or trades union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they're together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving, which they wouldn't have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it isn't a real person. It is only rather like a person. But that's just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the father and son is a real person, is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. Now think about this in terms of Awaken's communal spirit, right? The spirit of the time when we're all together. If that, if that communal spirit came to life somehow, what kind of person would that be? They'd probably be pretty easygoing for the most part, good sense of humor, just a, a hint of sarcasm, maybe, maybe a little too much, really passionate about the Lord, about serving their brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is a person in his own right and is the communal personality that exists between the Father and and the Son, which is why we read in the Bible when the Spirit is described, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and you also can think of 1 Corinthians 13, when the Spirit is talked about, it is always characteristics. And it's because the Holy Spirit is this communal personality that exists between the Father and the Son. He is uncreated because if the Father is past eternal, Therefore, the son is past eternal as well, like we talked about. And then the relationship, this communal spirit never came into existence, but has always been. Therefore, the father, the son, the spirit are three distinct individuals, co-substantial, co-divine, and co-eternal with each other. But how do we know they're actually divine? This is a question that we can answer by looking at scripture. Let's look at Psalm 89.26. Let's look at the deity of the Father. Psalm 89.26 says, He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock, my Savior. Galatians 4.4-7 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. So this idea of God the Father has never really been a controversial idea. There's so many, so many more verses we could look at, but again, this idea has never been too controversial. I want to talk about the deity of the Son, though, which historically and now, I guess, has been very controversial. Before we do that, though, I want to take a very quick look at the Greek, because this could be important when we talk about the deity of the Son. The Greek word for God is theos, and this is how the Father is referred to in the New Testament. He is referred to as o theos. He is the Father, the God. 
This is an important title to remember from when we talk about the sun. So let's look at the deity of the sun. This has been and is the controversial idea. Colossians 1:15 through 19 says, The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And then chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So we see with Christ, who is a distinct person, who is by nature divine, the fullness of God lives in Christ. Distinct person, divine nature, Jesus is God. He fits our description. But let's look at this from another angle. Let's look at Romans 10, 9, and 13, which say, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's important to understand what Paul means by Lord here. The Greek word for Lord is this word, kurios. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, plus some other books, but that's a different topic, just know that almost always our Old Testaments in English are translated from the Septuagint. They are translated from the Greek. In Hebrew, God in the Old Testament was referred to as Yahweh. In the Septuagint, this is changed to Lord, Kyrios, which is why in our English Bibles, you'll see in place of Yahweh, whenever it's referring to God in the Old Testament, you'll see the word Lord spelled with a capital L and smaller capital O-R-D following it to know that they're not speaking of just a important person, but they're speaking of Yahweh. In Romans 10, 9, and 13, Jesus says you must believe, or Paul says that you must believe Jesus is Lord. He says that in verse 9. And then in 13, he quotes a passage from Joel, where it says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Joel, Lord is referring to Yahweh. And you can look at this passage in Joel in your Bibles. It is the capital L, smaller capital O-R-D. So in other terms, or in other words, Paul says, you must believe Jesus is Lord. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word Lord that Paul's referring to is Yahweh. Therefore, he's calling Jesus God. This isn't just a statement of salvation. This is a theological statement that Paul is making here. And in this way, you'll see that in the New Testament, the Father is almost always referred to as Otheos, God, just this plain title. And then Jesus is almost always referred to as Okurios, the Lord. In this way, the New Testament writers call Jesus God and call the Father God without calling them each other because they're distinct individuals. So, this is exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 
where it says, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, Theos, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, this is Kurios, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul calls Jesus God, and he calls the Father God without calling them each other. Same substance, one God, different persons. On a few occasions, though, Jesus is just straight up called God. In John 20, 28, says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Titus 2, 11 and 13, uh, through 13 says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, they're not, they're not calling the Son the Father here. And they're not trying to be confusing. They're just ascribing divinity to Jesus in the simplest, plainest terms in a few moments, in a few passionate moments. But let's look at Jesus' divinity from one more angle before we talk about the Spirit. Matthew 28, 9 says this, So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Worship is an activity that is reserved for God alone. And we see here that Jesus is worshipped. And he's worshipped in a lot more fanfare in Revelation 5, 12 through 14, which says, In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We see the same thing here. Jesus is worshipped. It is the definition of blasphemy to worship anyone who is not God. But we see in Scripture, Jesus is worshipped. So let's talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit now. Romans 8, 9 through 11 says this, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are, are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of Christ lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. So, first off, we see the Spirit referred to as the Spirit of God than the Spirit of Christ. This is more evidence for the divinity of Jesus. But we're looking at the Spirit in particular here. The Spirit is very closely associated with Jesus and is called the Spirit of Christ. And if you want to know more about that, John 14 lays this out. That the Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth. If you want more details, definitely read John 14. But the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of God. We already saw that the Spirit is a distinct individual. If he is the Spirit of God, that means the Spirit is of divine nature. So if he is a distinct individual who is of divine nature, then the Spirit is divine. This is seen very clearly in Acts 5, 3 through 4, which says this. Then Peter said, Ananias, 
How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the lands? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So we see Ananias lied to God. He has lied to the Holy Spirit. Or in the proper order, we see that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he has lied to God. The Spirit is divine. So there's one God. And there are three distinct persons, three distinct, fully aware, and separate minds of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-eternal, co-divine, co-substantial. Now let's talk about how understanding the Trinity relates to us as Christians. Well, first off, I think understanding the Trinity helps us avoid certain heresies, first of which would be modalism. This is one of these terms I said I would define later. Modalism is a belief in God's oneness, but the rejection of his trinity. This often looks like, on accident in the church, viewing God as maybe three different relationships as opposed to person. We would say, well, the Father is just God acting as creator. The Son is just God acting as redeemer. And the Holy Spirit is just God acting as the one who sanctifies. While this is, these are real things that each person does, they're persons. It's not God wearing different masks. God is three distinct individuals. Modern-day modalists would be Unitarians, for example. And if you go to their website, they will literally say, like, front page, we are modalists. They believe in the, in the oneness of God, reject this trinity. Another heresy that's a little less common in the church, is Arianism. Now, as a clarification, this is not like Third Reich Arianism, totally different Arianism, spelled a different way, and it's named after Arius of Alexandria. And this heresy that he started to promote in the third century was very, very popular and very, very destructive. Arianism is a belief that Jesus is a created being, that he is not divine, Therefore, they also reject the Trinity. Modern-day Arians would be Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses because they believe that Jesus is a created being. Another mistake that is made is making Jesus the only object of worship. I think a lot more can be said on this, but if the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God, they must too be worshipped. I think this might happen, however, because um, at first glance, the Trinity might seem very complex. So we choose not to think about it like, well, I guess I know Jesus is really important, so I'll just worship him. And then we accidentally disregard and kind of reject the Father and the Spirit, but they too are to be worshiped. And then lastly, a mistake that is made, I think, commonly on accident in the church is viewing the Holy Spirit as an it to be used. And how many people do you know or have you heard refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, as if he is a force? The Holy Spirit is a he. He is a distinct person and he is God and we should honor him as such. I think that 
in some more charismatic practices, not most of them, not even remotely close to most of them, but in just some more charismatic practices, you see people view the Holy Spirit as this force to be used for the sake of power, and people act as if they can command God what to do in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not commanded. He is God, and we worship him. So understanding the Trinity also defines our beliefs. The church in the fourth century defined Christian Trinitarian belief, mostly in response to Arianism because it was so popular and destructive. And this brought about the first and second councils, the Council of Nicaea, very popular, it was one of them. And out of the Council of Nicaea came the Nicene Creed, which this version that I will read is sometimes referred to as the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. I think Nicene Creed sounds way better for obvious reasons. And this is what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Clarification. It's probably important. The term holy Catholic and apostolic church is referring to the church as a whole, the sum of all believers. This creed was written 600 years before the great schism that separated the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. So this is not some pledge of allegiance to the Vatican. Catholic means universal, apostolic referring to the apostles and their teachings. But Nicene Creed is the fundamental belief of Christianity. It defines what we believe and what we believe about God. And it's very important. It's understanding the Trinity that largely separates us from other monotheistic beliefs, like Islam, for example, which rejects the divinity of Jesus Christ, rejects the Trinity of God. It's good to understand God's nature so we know about the God that we worship. Though, like I said, we do not reject Judaism, but we believe that our Trinitarian beliefs are an elaboration of the God that we see in the Old Testament, not a rejection of all of that theology. Finally, understanding the Trinity makes sense of our beliefs. And as I say these last points here, Kim and Christine can come back up. But the Trinity makes sense of our beliefs. Consider this. How can God be loving by nature if he spent eternity past by himself? If there's nobody to love, how can this be something that God has always done? Well, we know that God had perfect unity and love between the three persons of the Trinity in eternity past. And this is how we should understand. And the Holy Spirit, as I'll say it this way, the Holy Spirit 
is this love amongst other characteristics that is natural to God that he has always displayed. The Trinity makes this possible. It makes sense of our beliefs because it would be blasphemy to worship Jesus otherwise. We're about to worship here. We're going to worship Jesus. Every single person in this room would be committing blasphemy and would be guilty of sin if Jesus was not divine, if the Trinity was not true. And finally, Trinitarian doctrine explains the Holy Spirit's purpose in our lives. If the Holy Spirit can be thought of as the communal personality that exists between the Father and the Son, which looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. Did I say that? I, always, I can never remember all the fruits of the Spirit. There's too many. But this is who the Holy Spirit is. If the fruit of the Holy Spirit can be defined by these terms, plus some other terms that aren't in Galatians 5, like holiness, righteousness, power, and the Holy Spirit lives in us, then of course we should expect that we'd be transformed into the image of God. This is exactly what Paul tries to say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, when he says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into the image, and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the communal personality of God, which is all of his character traits, and he lives in us we should expect to take those on as well. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And that is my prayer for us as Christians and in this church, that in a deeper knowledge of God, we would have a deeper unity with God. And as we have a deeper unity with God, we would grow and mature more into his image. And as we are grown and matured more into his image, we would bring, we would bring glory to God as well. And hopefully other people would see that too. So it's not enough just to, um, not quite sure how I want to say this. It's not enough just to know of God and his characteristics and his attributes. It's good to know those and we want to feel those, but we must truly understand him with our minds too. Because in a proper understanding of our, with our minds, we will develop in a good and proper way emotionally and spiritually with the Lord. And understanding the Trinity, God's nature, helps us do this properly so that we can worship the Lord the best of our ability, honestly, and be transformed into his image, take on the characteristics of God for his glory. So if you're thinking now, well, we're about to worship, who do I worship? The Father, Son, Spirit, I mean, you know, like there are three distinct persons. We worship God in unity, unity and Trinity. God is a unity of three. So when we worship the Lord, we worship one God. So... That said, I'm going to pray, and then we'll worship. God, thank you that you are so magnificent and amazing. And though it's impossible to comprehend all of you, Lord, thank you that you have given us the ability to at least understand some of you. And we want to. We want to understand you, Lord, because we love you. We want to know you because you have done so much for us. We want to grow in unity with you. We want to grow more into your image and bring glory to your name. So Lord, I pray that you would draw us all into worship now, in this time, and we would truly adore, adore you, truly worship you, because you are worthy of it. It is in your nature to deserve it. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>